Well, good morning. Our ushers are coming to take the offering and it's good to remember that you know, each week we make this as a part of our worship. And if you are new with us, feel free to let the offering plates go by. We hope this service is a gift to you. But for those of us who call this place home, you know, we do this as a part of our worship every week because it reminds us that we can trust God. And when we give from what he's entrusted to us, we learn to trust him more. So we want to learn to be a trusting people and a people who recognize that we've been entrusted with much by God. So as we participate in that part of our worship, you can turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and that's where we'll be today. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and last week we looked at the mercy of Jesus, and we saw a beautiful story of Jesus protecting mercy uh, over us. And so we turn now to the rest of that chapter in John chapter 8. And as I was looking at the text this week, I started thinking about when I was in high school. And how many of you, when you were in high school or when you were younger, you would like, uh, you had just had bad taste in movies. You would watch things that there's no way you would watch now. That was totally me. Like, so let me just say, I hate scary movies. I hate them. I do not enjoy them. I think they are just awful. But I watched a movie when I was in high school that I regret watching called Scream. Does anybody remember Scream? Don't go see this movie. So it scared me half to death. I hate it. I remember watching it. And where I grew up uh, in Dallas, we had alleys. And there are not a lot of alleys. There's alleys like in the boroughs here, but there's not like alleys out where I live. And so we had alleys. And so most people would have their garage on the back side of their house, not the front side of their house. And so you'd park in the alley. Well, my parents took up those spots. And so I always had to park in front of the house. But then because for some unknown reason to me, I still do not know the reason for this to this day. We didn't have a key to our front door. We only had a key to the back door. And that's all they gave me. I think I was only half part of the family or something. I don't know. And so I had a key to the back door. But what that meant is I went to see this movie and parked in front of my house. And then I had to walk from the front of my house between my house and the neighbor's house where it's really, really dark. And I had to walk from the front to the back. And then I had to make my way around and get through the gate. And, you know, I'm pretty sure the whole time I'm making this walk, I can feel that murderer behind me. You know, you've, you've been there and it's just making your skin crawl and you're scared to death. I'm like 17 or 18 at this point. I'm way more scared than I should have been allowed to be at that point. But I was like, a, I was scared of the dark, okay, y'all? Scared of the dark. And to make matters worse, when you made this little traverse between our houses and it's pitch black and you can't see anything, there's like, there's like a hole in the ground where you can totally break an ankle. And in the daylight, you can see it clear as day. But at night, you're kind of walking like this because you're just not, sure that you, you don't want to step in it and like, you know, go down. And then you round the corner and you would think that what would be great was there's a motion light that comes on and all that does is blind you for a second. And so you're pretty sure that, that he's catching you now, you know, like, and so then you get through the gate and you go in and you unlock the door. Once I was in the gate, I usually felt a little bit better, you know, and then I would unlock the door, get in. Listen, here's the deal. The dark is scary. It's frightening, right? Because in the dark, you can't see where you're going. It's, your steps are uncertain. You don't know what's there that might surprise you or scare you. If you have kids, don't you have a lot of sympathy for them when they're scared of the dark? When they, when they call out from, you know, wherever their room is, dad, mom, I need you, and they're crying, you don't see, suck it up. Quit it. There's nothing to be scared of. No, you feel Great empathy, great sympathy. You're just thinking it's, some of you are like, that's what I do. You're wrong. As parents, you're wrong. Stop doing that. The dark is scary. It really is for so many reasons. But the light 
If the dark is scary and life-taking, the light is life-giving. The light is where you see what's in front of you. The light is where you can understand the nature of all that's going on and you don't have to be afraid. The light is where the truth is seen. The light is where scary things actually run away from the light when you're in the light. As we come to John chapter eight today, we're looking at a story where Jesus claims to be the light of the world. And really the whole chapter revolves around this. There's a lot of back and forth between him and some religious leaders where he's gonna say, I'm the light of the world. And they're gonna say, look, you're testifying about yourself and you, know, you gotta have other people testifying about you. Who else says this about you? And there's this whole back and forth that goes on. But really the whole chapter, the whole rest of the chapter from verse 12 to verse 59 of chapter eight is really about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world and what that means. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm the light of the world. That's what I'd like to look at with you today. So to start out, we need a little context. So we're gonna be not overly academic, but we're gonna be a little rigorous here, okay? Can we do that? To start, and then we're gonna be exceedingly practical on the back end. So just to give you a little bit of a roadmap. So look with me, John chapter eight, just one verse together that we're gonna look at, and then we'll unpack that. John chapter eight, verse 12, and then slowly we're gonna look at some other texts after that. So John chapter eight. In verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, so there's our thematic verse for the whole rest of this chapter that's gonna kind of determine the meaning of everything else that we're gonna run into. Now, in order to understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world, we need a little bit of context. So let's remind ourselves of the context of where we are in the Gospel of John. I wanna give you a little historical context that you need to know in order to understand that he's saying something maybe perhaps much more than you may have thought he was saying. And then we need a little bit more context in what he's gonna say after he says this, so that you can kind of understand what he's getting at, the claim he's making when he says, I am the light of the world. So the first thing to remind ourselves of, if, you were, if you've been with us throughout this whole series, you remember that we said that Jesus makes seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, and it kind of serves as a, 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 an outline for the book. And we've seen one of those so far, and it was in John chapter six when Jesus said, I am the bread of what? Anybody remember? The bread of life, absolutely. And there what we saw is that Jesus was saying, I am the sustaining power that God offers to you to live. If you will eat me, if you'll take me in, then I can do something for you that will produce life in you, which is really awesome, right? So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And now this is the second of those seven I am statements. Now remember seven in biblical think is essentially a number of completion or of fulfillment. So the idea of Jesus saying seven times, I am, and then filling in the gap with something there, I am this, I am that, is his way of saying, I am the kind of sum total of all that you need in life. That's why he makes seven I am statements. So I'm the bread of life, now we come to the second I am statement, I am the light of the world. And I want you to remember and see here that there's a promise at play in this I am statement because he doesn't just say I'm the light of the world and leave it at that. He says, whoever follows me will not what? Walk in darkness. Do you see that that's a promise Jesus is giving to you? If you will walk with him, you will not walk in darkness. And that's gonna come into play later. So just like put a pen in that, tuck it away, put it in your back pocket. We're gonna come back to that, all right? So second of the seven I am statements, I am the bread of life. Now, 
To understand a little bit further, we need to remember the context of not just where we are in the Gospel of John, that we've come to the second of seven I am statements, but we need a little bit of historical context. You remember that about a chapter and a half ago, we said that we were starting into a place called the Feast of Tabernacles. There was a celebration happening, and Jesus had said initially he wasn't going to go, and then he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. And we said, when we looked at that, in John chapter 7, we looked at that and we said, It's a feast celebrating the harvest, and that's true, but I intentionally didn't give you the rest of the story because I wanted to selfishly hold it for today, all right? So the second half of what you need to know about the Feast of Tabernacles today, and this is kind of a little bit of a history lesson, okay? There were three three ceremonies that were held uh, as a part of the Feast of Tabernacles over the course of a week in Jerusalem at the temple, and these... these, ceremonies were all meant to be reminders of what God had done for the people of Israel when they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So if you're not familiar with this Old Testament story, Israel, God's chosen people, had been enslaved in Egypt, and then God had sent Moses and freed them from that slavery, but then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder of all those years of wandering and all that God did during those years of wandering. And so they would practice three celebrations, three ceremonies each year, year as a part of this feast as a way of remembering what God had done for them as a people. And it's in that context that Jesus makes this claim to be the light of the world. And when you see what the ceremonies are and what he's saying, I think you'll agree it illuminates for us, pun intended, what Jesus meant when he said light of the world. Come on, that was relatively funny. Sometimes I got to ask for the, you know, I got to ask for it. All right, so ceremony number one is a water drawing ceremony. And what that would be is they would go down to the, the pool of Shiloh or Siloam, and they would draw water. And when they would do that, what they were remembering in this ceremony was that back in their wanderings, God had caused water to come from a rock. Does anybody remember this story? The people were in a desert, in a dry place, and there's no water, and they're gonna die. And they say, well, you brought us out here, Moses, and there's, there's literally nothing to sustain our lives. And God caused water to come from a rock. And so when they would do this water drawing ceremony, they were remembering God is the one who saved us by giving water when we had no water. Now, just back up a moment, because do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 7? Just one chapter before this. We talked about it before, but we actually focused on the, the role of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit when we talked about it. But let's remember in John chapter 7, verse 37, what Jesus said. At the Feast of Tabernacles, he stands up in front of everybody in the temple and he says, ah, if anyone thirsts, let him what? Come to me and drink Now, do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, oh yes, the Father gave you the the water from the rock in the wilderness, and we're remembering that now with this water drawing ceremony, and I'm telling you, you can come to me and drink because I'm true water for you. Now, now Jesus' words have a little bit more meaning there in John chapter seven. Now, the second ceremony is the building of the, the sukkah. Everyone say sukkah with me. Fantastic, you're Hebrew experts, awesome, good job. That's what that looks like. A sukkah is a temporary dwelling place. And the reason they would build these, and they still build them, by the way, if you go to Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll find that they still build sukkah and there's certain requirements about it. It can't be completely closed off to the weather. It has to let some of the weather in. And the idea is, when you build this, you're remembering that your ancestors, the people of Israel, had wandered in the wilderness and they had built these types of dwellings and they weren't the ideal types of housing, right? They didn't keep you really warm. They didn't totally keep you sheltered. And because we wandered for 40 years and lived in these kinds of places, God 
provided for us and protected us and made a way for us. And so yearly we go and we live in these for a a week as a way of remembering that God had protected us when we were living in temporary kinds of dwelling places. So that's the second thing that they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles every year is build a sukkah and live in it as a way of remembering, hey, when my people wandered in the wilderness, God, he housed us, essentially. We didn't have great houses, God housed us. He was a shelter for us. Now the third, you might think, what does all this have to do with the light of the world? And now here we come to it. The third ceremony was a lighting of candelabra ceremony. When I say candelabra, don't picture a little one that goes on top of a baby grand piano, okay? We're talking about massive pillars that would be lit. Uh, and there were, there were several of them in the temple courts. And you see it here. This is a picture of the temple lit up. Can you see those massive lights in the different places around the temple? That's an illustration of what it would have looked like for all these candelabra to have been lit up. Now, it was said that because the temple stood on a hill overlooking most of Jerusalem, because it was on a mount, that it lit up the entire rest of the city. So that every year when these were lit, just imagine how much light had to be coming from the temple in, the, in what was called the court of the women. There was a, these, these lamps were lit and it provided light for the rest of the city. Now, it was also said about this ceremony, and it was a ceremony. When I pick, don't just picture sort of some somber lighting of candles. They danced and they sang and they celebrated as they were lighting the candles. In fact, it's, there's a legend that one rabbi could juggle eight torches. I don't know. That sounds a little, little hyperbolic to me. But they would dance and toss fire. I mean, literally, that's what's happening. They're tossing fire around and just celebrating. You know, this is the party of all parties of the year, right? It was said by, uh, Jew, by the Jewish religious class that if you hadn't seen this celebration, if you hadn't seen this ceremony, you had never seen joy. That's the way they thought of this moment. If you haven't seen this, you haven't, you haven't even had joy. You haven't had a taste of joy. You hadn't seen it. Now, why all the candle lighting? Because what they were remembering, again, in the wilderness, was that when they needed God, he showed up, how? In a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And he led them. Do you remember that when they were stuck in the wilderness and they were, God had them actually turn back and they were going to be stuck between uh, the Red Sea and the army of Egypt who was coming for them? And God caused this pillar of cloud and fire to then go and stand behind them, between them and the army of Egypt. And then he parted the Red Sea and they went through the water unharmed. And then God closed up the Red Sea. He moved the pillar of fire and the Egyptian army chased after and he caused them to be overwhelmed by the waters then. Now the other thing that then that pillar of fire, here's a demonstration of uh, dwelling over the tabernacle. The other thing this pillar of fire was said to have done as you read the Exodus, if you read through this story in the Old Testament, is that the pillar of cloud and fire would rest over the tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling. And it would rest there as a, as a symbol of his presence with his people. And the people would not move until the pillar moved. And when the pillar moved, then they knew to pick up camp and move again to another location. So they were being led through the wilderness and protected in the wilderness by God's pillar of fire and his pillar of cloud and smoke. Do you, are you following me so far? Are we a little too academic? Are we okay? All right, good. A couple of you said we're okay. The rest of you, we'll tune you back in later, I guess. I don't know. So here's what's happening. Here's what's happening, right? Jesus now, picture this. In this moment, with this lighting of the candles, it's all just, the candles essentially have just been snuffed out. 
the Feast of Tabernacles has come to an end. It's just ended. And now Jesus, after all these ceremonies, the water ceremony, the sukkah ceremony, and especially the lighting of the candles ceremony, Jesus then steps up and into that space in the temple, says he's teaching in the treasury in the temple. And what does he say? I am the light of the world. This light that you've just been talking about, this presence of God among you, that's me. I'm the one. I'm here now. You see, the the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire represented God's presence with his people to both guide, lead, and to protect. And that's what the people had just been celebrating. And now Jesus enters into that. And when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's not just simply saying, hey, I'm a good teacher that can illuminate for you some good ideas so that you'll understand more about God. I'm not just the light of the world in the sense that, hey, I can teach you about what's true and what's false. Hey, I'm not just the light of the world and that I can help you kind of understand where you should go and how you should navigate life. And I'm, you should like listen to me. That's how we sometimes perceive what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the light of the world. But do you see now that what he's saying in light of the Feast of Tabernacles, he's saying, I am the very presence of God in your midst. I am here and I am the light. Now, having looked at that, there's one more thing we need to look at now because Jesus is gonna do a little bit more even throughout the rest of this chapter Up to this point, you could say that just like the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, they weren't God himself, but they represented a manifestation of his presence, right? Do you guys understand that? So God is manifesting his presence through this pillar of fire that then is leading the people. It's not God himself. And so you could look at what Jesus has said here and go, okay, he's claiming to be some kind of manifestation of God's presence, but perhaps in a temporary sense, like as the Messiah, as the Christ. Perhaps he's the one who is saying, I uniquely represent God. I uniquely represent his presence among you. But maybe he's not claiming to to sort of be something even more than that. But then he's gonna go on in the rest of John chapter eight and he's gonna tell us, oh, if you think that, let me just clear, clear this up for you, right? So we said that there are seven I am statements throughout the book of John, right? And they're I am statements with a predicate, okay? And what that means is I am the bread of life. That's the bread of life is the predicate. It's the closing part of that sentence, right? Or I am here the light of the world. Or how about another one? I am what? What do we got? Good shepherd, absolutely. I'm the resurrection and the life, right? Yeah, so we have all, I am the gate for the sheep. So we're gonna see all these. And those are I am statements. And when you look at those, what he means is determined by what's at the end of the sentence. So when he says, I am the bread of life, we understand what he means by examining the idea of, well, what does bread of life mean? Or what does light of the world mean? Or what does good shepherd mean? That's what he's saying about himself. But there are numerous other times throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus makes an I am statement with no predicate. There's nothing on the back side of it. And three of those, that's more than anywhere else, are in this chapter where he says, I am, and that's it. He doesn't say, I am something. He just says, I am. And so to understand what he's getting at, we have to understand what he means by that. So let's look at those three I am statements with no predicate, with nothing on the back side of it to fill out its meaning. And let's see if we can't understand what Jesus is saying about himself when he says, I am the light of the world. So look at verse 24. This is where we see it first. In verse 24, we find that he says, I told you that you would die in your sins 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, when you read the English version there, there's something that I need to give a little clarity to, that we've supplied the I am he to make it sort of smooth in its English, but when you look at it in the original language, there's no word for he there, it's just I am. So the more literal translation would be, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Not I am he, just I am. Now he's gonna go on to verse 28. So a couple verses later, we're gonna see the second one of these, and he's gonna say this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, and lifted up as a reference to his cross, to his crucifixion, when you've crucified me, when you've lifted me up, then you will know that I am. Okay? Then finally, in verse 58, second to last verse of the entire chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what church? I am, right? And there we don't even supply the he. We just, the before Abraham was, I am. Now in all three of those situations, we have to recognize that there's, there's either some odd grammar going on or that Jesus is saying something that perhaps we haven't understood very well, right? And so, Let's, uh, let's throw up this slide. Here's the word that Jesus is using. So I am, and then the, there's the Greek underneath it, but it, the English transliteration is ego a me. Everybody say ego a me. It sounds like breakfast food, right? But it's not. All right? Ego a me literally means I am. Now, when Jesus says ego a me and doesn't put, when he says I am the light of the world, he says ego a me, and then he uses the Greek phrase for light of the world, Right? But in the Hebrew Old Testament, the the Greek translation of that Hebrew Old Testament, in Exodus chapter three, verse 14, when Moses is sent to the people of of, uh, Israel to free them from the Egyptians, and Moses is getting his mission from God, and he says to God, he asks God a question. It's a great question. He says, hey, when I get there, and I say to them, God sent me, they're probably gonna ask me, well, God who? And who do I say? Like, what name should I give them, and what is God's response? Here it is in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. This is what you should say to them. I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you. In other words, what God is claiming there in Exodus chapter three is he's saying the best way to describe me, the best personal name for me is to say that I, I, I just am. I exist. No one makes me exist. My existence is not contingent upon anyone or anything I am the essence of all created life. I am self-sufficient, self-sustaining. I need no one. I am uncreated. No one has made me exist. I am. My existence is the fact upon which all other things are based. Now, does that make sense? That's what he's claiming about himself when he says, I am. I am eternal and self-sufficient self-existent, self-sustaining. So rightly then, the nation of Israel has treasured this revelation of God in Exodus chapter three throughout its entire existence, right? Oh, this is who God revealed himself to be. This is the name that he gave to himself when he revealed himself to us. He is the I am. And now Jesus, in John chapter eight, steps up in verse 24 and he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then verse 28, Perhaps if you're sitting there, you would have thought to yourself, wait, wait, what did he just say? And then in verse 28, he said, when you've lifted me up, then you'll know that I am. To which you might have said, 
you are what? And he would have, you would have realized, he, said, oh, he just said, I am. Now in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And in verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him because they recognize what he's saying. He is saying, I am the very presence of God in your midst. That God who revealed himself as I am in Exodus chapter three, that's me. And I'm here. I'm among you. I am. Ego me. Now, for you and I, if you've spent some time in church, right? Like I've grown up in church. And it's so interesting because I, I spent most of my life being taught Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. And so, you know, that, that phrase can just kind of slip right past me because it, it's become commonplace for me to think that way. Yes, Jesus is God, right? Like if you've been with us for a while and you haven't picked up on the, the thing that we're trying to teach you, that Jesus is God, we've done a really bad job, right? So we think, yeah, Jesus is God, I get it. But can you transport yourself for a moment now back to the place where the God who's revealed himself in a pillar of smoke and fire, the God who you couldn't touch the mountain upon which he had caused his glory to descend lest you die, the God who revealed himself as I am, but really, in a very real sense, stood in holy distance from you, now there's a person that you can touch standing in front of you, and he's saying, that's me. I am. John chapter eight is one of the richest places to go. I'm sure you've all had a friend or a a coworker or someone who has said something like, you know, I'm not sure Jesus ever claimed to be God. Have you heard this before? I'm not sure Jesus ever made that claim. Just go straight to John chapter eight, right? And then you can impress him with great words like suka. Don't do that, that's annoying, don't. But you can take him there and you can say, actually look look what he's saying about himself. Okay, so lest we think that when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, well, I'm a kind of a temporary manifestation of the presence of God. He gives us these three I am moments in John chapter eight, right on the heels of I am the light of the world, where he is essentially saying, I am the I am from Exodus chapter three. And by the way, Isaiah 43 verse 10 and Isaiah 44 and over and over again in the Old Testament. That's me. So now we understand that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, I am the very presence of God among you. Where I am, God is. I am God in flesh. I am unique. I am uncreated and eternal and self-sustaining in life, self-existent. I need no one to give me life. I possess all life in myself. Church, do you see? All right. This is the claim that Jesus is making. So now, we've seen how the pillar of cloud and fire led and protected Israel in the wilderness, right? This is the thing that's being alluded to in the Feast of Tabernacles, this manifestation of God, and Jesus is claiming to be that very thing. So now can we just kind of move out of, if that was a little bit of history and a little, maybe a little academic, can we move now just into the exceedingly practical Because there's two things that that pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire really did, or at least what's highlighted in the scriptures that it did, was to protect the people when the Egyptian army was coming for them. 
it, it was a shield to them. The army couldn't pass through the fire of God to get to them. It stood behind them while they crossed through the Red Sea to protect them. And then it led them. That pillar of fire stood over the tabernacle and whenever the people, they, people, they stopped, they set up camp and they waited and they did not move until the fire moved. They waited, they lived there, they camped there and then they moved. So it, the, the presence of God led them so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is claiming, he is claiming to be the absolute manifestation of the presence of God. He is God in the flesh, the great I am. But practically too, what he's saying to us is not just, okay, so now fall down and worship that that's who I am. Absolutely, that's the right response that we should have. But also learn that when I say I'm the light of the world, I'm also saying I'm the light that guides you and I'm the light that protects you. I'm the light that guides you. I'm the light that protects you. Trent, you don't need to run through the, house, through the houses scared of the dark anymore because I'm the light that protects you, that watches over you. So let's look at those two things and ask, how does Jesus do that? Jesus is the light of the world and that light protects and that light guides. And let's look at this text and see how he does that. So look with me again at verse 12 and let's start with the idea that the light guides us. Jesus is the light of the world, is our guide. So again, verse 12, he says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, so whenever we see light in the scriptures, it is representative of God's presence and as a result of representing God's presence, it also represents all that is good and beautiful and true. All that is good and beautiful and true. So when Jesus says, if you follow me, if you walk with me, if you go where I go, if you look to me, you won't walk in darkness. And I already said, that's a promise. Church, please remember, that's a promise. It's not a maybe. If you'll walk with him, you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. In other words, you will begin to understand, you will be guided by an understanding of what is good and beautiful and true. If Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and that means I am God's presence among you and with you, then how does he guide us? He guides us by showing us who he is. And when we see him, we see the, the measure of all that is good, of all that is beautiful, and all that is true. So before we've ever taken a question to him, like, hey, Jesus, I've got two paths in front of me. Which one should I go down? Which we should do, right? But before I've ever asked this question, he's already given me guidance by showing me who he is and thereby showing me the nature of all that is good and right in the world. And when I know what is good, when I know what is beautiful, when I know what is true, I can choose it as opposed to choosing what is bad and ugly and false. Now the other thing that I want you to see here is that Jesus in verse 12 says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So what he's a appealing to there, what he's alluding to there is, the, is this idea, that when Jesus comes into your life, he brings spiritual life into you, right? That's the presence of God's spirit. It comes and it, and it gives new life, new spiritual life. You are no longer what you were. You're a new thing. And because that new life has come into you, now there's a light that comes out of that life that's in you. There's a new ability to illuminate things that you couldn't see before. How many of you before you came to Jesus, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you, came, before you came to Jesus, you love things that you don't love anymore? 
You thought things were valuable and good that you now see are not valuable and good. You thought things were beautiful and wonderful and appealing that now you think are gross because you would never want those things anymore because what has happened, the light of life has come into you and it has begun to reveal to you what is good and what is actually beautiful and what is true, right? You don't buy the world's lies anymore about beauty. You don't look at the magazine rack anymore and go, oh, that's what beauty looks like, all that airbrushed beauty. You say, no, no, that's false. That's not beauty. Beauty is chastity. And beauty is, is mystery. And beauty is, you know, conservative in, in, in the sense of that, like, not pouring ourselves out for the world to see. Beauty is modest. Beauty is gentle. Beauty is not alluring. Beauty is something very different than what I used to think beauty was. You see, when Jesus comes in as the light of the world, what he's given you is a visible representation of God. Now, friends, recognize that what has happened when Jesus, the light of the world, has come to us. I mean, part of the very point of Jesus coming and living on the earth and being with us is that we might know him. And in knowing him, then, we have this resource that we can measure any possible course of life against, well, does it look like Jesus or does it not look like Jesus? Because if it looks like him, then it's good and beautiful and true. He's the light of the world. But if it doesn't look like him, then it's not. It's not good and beautiful and true. It's bad and it's ugly and it's false. I don't want it. But here's the thing. See, we do not have a God who stayed at a distance and told us about himself and then said, okay, now here's all this stuff about me. Memorize it, learn it, know it, and now act accordingly to what you've seen. But I'm staying way over here. We have a God who has come near to us who has drawn close to us and said, now, day by day by day, know me, follow me, walk with me, talk to me. When you get up in the morning and go and sit on your couch and open up the word, I'm gonna sit right by you. I'm gonna be with you. Take advantage of me. It's baffling to me that God has made himself known in Jesus and he is our light. If you will know him, he will illuminate for you your path. He will guide you and direct you. Simply by knowing his nature, you will know so often what to do and where to go. And we act as if that's no big deal. We don't rise in the morning and say, I wanna be with you. I want to meet with you. I want to talk to you. I want to wait on you. I want to li- what do you have to say? I want to listen to you. I just want to talk at you. You talk to me. We have the greatest Look, we go gaga over famous people. Cuz they can make a ball go across a line. Or they can take a little orange thing and put it in a hoop. All right, I'm guilty of that. It's impressive sometimes. We see them in the airport and we think, "Ooh, because they can sing. He saved the world. He is uncreated. He possesses life. He can speak and make something exist. Are you not impressed? 
I mean, yeah, who cares that you can take this and do this and make it go over there? It doesn't matter. Do you understand the way he guides us? Is he makes God known to us. And not from there telling us information and then saying, now memorize this and then you'll figure out what to do. He said, no, 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 I'm coming to you. I'm gonna be with you. Some, yeah, some of you are, are married, right? And how many of you, no matter how long you've been married, there's this interesting reality that everyone who's married experiences because this is the person who knows you best in the world and yet there still seems to be some part of yourself that they fail to understand. And this is why fights happen 50 years into marriages. Because you're like, how do you not get me yet? How do you not know this? It's because there's some part of us that always goes past words that we're not able to express to someone else. And no matter how deeply and intimately they know us as spouse for 50, 60 years, they will never know us like Jesus knows us, ever. It's why he's so, one of the reasons why he's so imperative. If, you're gonna, if you think I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna have somebody who knows me and loves me unconditionally, the best marriage, the best marriage is still never going to provide for your sense of longing that you need, you have a longing to be known in a way no human being can know you, no matter how close they get or how faithful they are for how many years, how unconditional their love. Those are all really awesome things, but they cannot do what Jesus can do. Do you know that Jesus has said to you, I am your true spouse, Right, like some of you are thinking, man, I, just, I would love to be married. I would just love to be married, right? And so you're tempted to settle for some bozo that you should never settle for. And Jesus is saying to you, like, I, yeah, that's funny, but Jesus is saying to you, I'm your spouse. You think settling for that guy is gonna satisfy you? It's never gonna work, ever. The best guy can't satisfy. The best girl can't satisfy because only I can do that. And so when Jesus, he may never bring you a spouse. And if he never does, do you know that he says to you, I'm your spouse. And would you really say to him, I need someone else? Marriage is a great good. It's a great gift from the Lord, designed by him. But oh, friends, if you think that it can do for you what only Jesus can do for you, you are mistaken. He guides us as the light of the world by giving us the very presence of God with us to show us what he's like. And so now we can ask the question in any circumstance, we can ask the question in any situation where any decision must be made, well, does this, does this look like Jesus? And if you need more, by the way, then just, okay, well, Jesus is the representation of what is good and beautiful and true and he's come to me and so he reveals that, he illuminates that to me again and again, day by day in this intimate, close, personal relationship that we have so that I can learn to identify it in the world where I see it and in the choices that I make. If you need more, he's given you even more because let me show you what he's done to be the light for your path. Verse 28, where he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am. Now, get what he's saying here. He's saying, you'll know that I'm the very presence of God, that I am God. You will know that when you have crucified me. Think about that for a moment. Because Jesus didn't say, you'll know that I'm God when you see the great miracles that I do. You'll know that I'm God when you hear my wonderful teaching. Both those things are true. He did amazing miracles. He taught in perfection like no one has ever taught. 
greatest teacher the world has ever seen. It says, you will know that I'm God when you see me on the cross. So that means a couple things. One, it means no one comes to Jesus unless they come to him on his cross. We don't come to Jesus just because of his power. We don't come to him just because of his teaching. We come to Jesus when we see him on his cross and we go, that's what God looks like in self-sacrificing, humble love. So can I just tell you, don't make the mistake of spending all your time trying to share the gospel with your friends by telling them all that Jesus will do for them. It's true, give them the greatest gift anyone's ever given them, eternal life, but they, no one comes to Jesus until they've come to him on his cross. You need to show them a crucified savior, a crucified Lord, a crucified God. Now, what does it have to do with guiding us? Well, here's what it has to do with guiding us. If Jesus' presence with us shows us the good, the beautiful, and the true, and thereby he's with us, intimate daily relationship, and we're seeing it and then measuring all our choices according to the good, beautiful, and true revealed in Jesus, the pinnacle act of his goodness, his beauty, and his truth is the cross. And if he's saying to these people, you'll know that I'm God when you see my cross, when you see me lifted up, then what he would say to you and I is, you will know the right path to take. You will know my path when you take the path that is marked by the character of the cross. Now that doesn't mean that every choice between this and that, we have to take the path that, re- that results in the most suffering. I don't intend to say that. But what I do say is this. It does mean that there is no path that would be the path of Jesus that, that is self-aggrandizing and self-centered and arrogant and proud, the humility of the cross, the, the sacrificial love of the cross. That's the way of Jesus. So he's given us not just his presence with us day in, day out, dwelling with him, talking with him to guide us. He's also given us this great pinnacle marker of activity in human history, the, the cross of Jesus, to show us, oh, if I take this path, is that Does that seem like the character of my crucified savior? Or is it self-promotional? Is it self-satisfied? Is it self-exalting? That would be the opposite of the pathway of the cross. Jesus is on the light of the world. He's saying, I guide you. And that's just a few ways how he does that. Now, let's look in the last part. How does the light protect us? The light guides us and the light protects us. See, in the Old Testament, we saw that the pillar of fire protected the people from their enemies, the Egyptians. But Jesus is the light of the world, protects us from an even greater enemy. Do you know that? He protects us from sin that leads to death. From sin that leads to death. And in this text, he tells us that he protects us from both the penalty of sin and the pleasure of sin. Okay, quickly, now look again at verse 24. It says this. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. All right, so if he's saying, look, if you don't believe in me, then you will die in your sins, then the opposite is also true. If you do believe in me, then you won't what? Die in your sins. So what he's saying is I have the ability to free you from the penalty of sin, because I've taken your sin on myself in my cross, if you will believe in me, then I'm able to take that for you. I protect you from the penalty of sin. That's the first and greatest protection. Look, many of us have been through seasons of life where we don't feel very protected, I know. 
But please, you have to always keep in mind, we have to rehearse this to ourselves again and again. I know that I feel under attack right now. I know I don't feel your deliverance, God, but I have to always know that at the very core of our relationship, at the very core of my existence is this truth. You have delivered me from the penalty of sin and there is no greater protection that a person could ever receive. And by that, I don't mean to minimize the times where we feel we're not being protected or we're in harm's way or things are difficult in life. I don't mean to minimize that, but I do mean to give you a weapon to wield in those moments because if you can remember that and rehearse it daily, it will be of great benefit to you because you will be reminded of the great protecting work of the light of the world that has been given to you. He has protected you. I know you don't see the penalty of sin right now all the time, but it is far worse than anything you've ever imagined in this world. Whatever you endure in this world does not compare with what you would endure if, your sin, if the penalty of sin has not been taken from you, if you haven't been protected from that penalty by Jesus. He has done a great protecting work. Now, that's the first type of protection in an eternal sense, but he does even more because he doesn't just say here, oh, I can protect you from the eternal penalty of sin. He actually says, I can protect you from the power of sin today, now, by removing the pleasure of sin from you. Look at verse 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Okay, let me pause right there. They, here's the conversation so far. Jesus says, if, you, if you're my disciples, if you follow me, if you abide in me, then you'll know the truth, right? It'll be illuminated to you. What is true? Good, beautiful, true. The true will be illuminated for you if you'll follow me. And you will be free by virtue of having that truth put in front of you. And then they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. We're children of Abraham. Well, if you know the history of Israel, they've been enslaved to almost every country that's ever been in power in the history of the world up to this point. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, now the Romans. They were enslaved all the time. So for the, what do they mean when they say we've never been enslaved to anyone? Well, they're appealing to Abraham, and so they're saying, we get, Jesus, that you're probably talking about some kind of like freedom that is spiritual in nature, and we're telling you because we're children of Abraham, we have never been enslaved spiritually. That's what they're saying. And Jesus says, you don't understand the nature of sin because look what he says next. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Okay, has everyone committed sin? Yeah, that means we're a slave to sin. It owns us. It has mastery over us. In other words, if, something, if you're a slave to something, you can't resist it. It compels you. It requires you to do certain things, and it's as if you must do them. That's the imagery being painted here. If you've committed sin, in other words, everybody, then you're a slave to it. You think you discipline your way out of that? You think you can just be self-controlled enough? to get your way out of enough willpower and you'll be good, you won't eat that extra thing that's gluttonous. No, you're a slave to it. But then look at what he says. Slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the conversation goes, if you'll follow me, you'll be set free because you'll know the truth. We're not enslaved to anybody, what are you talking about? 
Yes, you are. You're enslaved to sin. You just don't know it. But I can give you freedom from sin. Do you see that he's not just talking about the the penalty of sin that he can set us free from? He's talking about the pleasure of sin to draw us and to enslave us day in and day out. And he's saying, if you'll walk with me, if you'll abide in me, I'll set you free. I'll show you what's true. I'll show you what's good. I'll show you what's beautiful. And I will give you a new set of pleasures. I will change what you love so that you will walk with me and you'll be set free from the pleasure. Don't you know that the key to overcoming sin, whatever that besetting sin is in your life, the key to overcoming it is not willpower. It's not just discipline. Discipline is good. Flee from sin. Set up parameters in your life so that you are not tempted into sin or put in a context where sin becomes easy. Make it really hard to be in a context where sin could ever occur. Flee from it, get away from it, put boundaries around yourself so you would say, I am not even gonna put myself in a position where I could possibly sin. With all of that, the temptations will still come at times, yes? And discipline's not the key. A new set of desires is the key. And Jesus is saying, when you know me, the light of the world, I will set you free. In other words, I will give you a new set of pleasures. I will give you a new set of pleasures. Jesus, when he says, I'm the light of the world, is claiming to be able to guide us and to be able to protect us. So let me ask this question. Do you find yourself overcome by fear? Do you find yourself overcome by fear? If you do, can you hear Jesus saying to you today, I'm the light of the world. I protect you. Do you find yourself overcome by sin? These patterns in your life that you just can't seem to kick, do you find that to be the case? If you do, can you hear Jesus saying to you today, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world that guides you, I'll lead you, and I'll protect you from the power of sin. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be overcome by sin. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We are in awe of you, great light of the world. You illuminate for us all that is right, all that is true, all that is good and beautiful, and we delight in you. Forgive us when our worship is apathetic, when our prayers are shallow, when our following of you is meager. Help us. We admit our weakness. We ask you to help us. Great light of the world, come and display the Father to us. Send your spirit in and among us that we might know you daily, intimately. Draw us each morning when we wake up, draw us into your very presence. So we lay our head on the pillow at night. Draw us again, our minds to the truth. Thank you for not staying far away. Thank you for coming near. We cherish and treasure your revealing work, light of the world. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Won't you stand? Let's sing together.